So firstly, karela still sucks. Firstly, bitter is better. Sugar is like a bad boyfriend. I don't think one one size fits all. Hello and welcome. I'm Shashank Mehta, founder at thewholetruthfoods.com, and you're listening to the Whole Truth Project. At the Whole Truth, we are on a mission to simplify our food and release it from the grip of big food marketeers. To do so, in every episode of this podcast, we pick one fundamental food and fitness topic, and along with a curated panel of experts, we dive deep into it. All in an attempt to unearth the 360-degree unbiased truth of the topic at hand. That's it. That's our project. Let's dive right in. This month, we are decoding sugar, the big bad boy of the food world. On the panel today, I have Ashton Doctor, aka the Habit Coach. Ashton is the founder of Awesome 180, where he works on rewiring your brain to help you form healthier habits and lead a better lifestyle. Ashton is also a dear friend. We also have Kumud Dadlani, who's a food anthropologist and a sustainable supply chain manager. Kumud has written for the Condé Nast Traveler, the Hindu, the Culture Trip, the Daily Pow. and several other noteworthy publications and finally we have sanjeevni sanjeevni works at the whole truth and today is the 33rd day that she's been completely off sugar she's here to tell us how it really feels and to bring us back to reality if we start getting too theoretical let me start with you hey ashdin kumar and sanjeevni welcome uh, ashdin let me dive right in and start with you uh there seems to be a sudden universal uprising against sugar some of it is informed but some of it is again you know just the general feeling that now everyone has that all sugar is bad absolutely uh, can you start by talking about both the various kinds of sugar and whether all of them are really bad hmm. so you know it's interesting when we start thinking about sugar we just think everything is sugar you know we bucket everything down into this one big pile and very often we don't realize why sugar is bad you know that like what is this whole thing with sugar that we have to keep fighting with it and and the interesting thing is that there are three big reasons one is that sugar has snuck into every aspect of our life basically what has happened is that we have become so accustomed to the sweet taste that we're constantly looking for it everywhere now sugar was originally meant to be a little you know an, an embellishment on your food you know a dessert at the end a little bit something special but now we are getting something sweet in the morning as soon as we wake up even our toothpaste is sweet so we suddenly realize that sweetness has become such an aspect of the way that we live so th- so that is the first thing because you know we are seeing sugar everywhere the second aspect of sugar is that it is highly highly addictive we are constantly getting addicted to sugar in the format of you know um i feel like having this now once you eat something sugar makes you want to eat more of something makes you want to eat more of something else and it keeps increasing that way so the second aspect is addictiveness but the last one is very important which is about our habits you know we've been brought up having sugar so every time it is linked to our emotions you're sad you eat something sweet correct you're happy you eat something sweet like i my grandmother every time i came home crying from school would bake me a cake or a pudding so she used to make this fantastic bread pudding right so she would bake that for me so in my mind every time i'm down associated with sweet so this is why sugar has become bad you know per se 
in small quantities, perfectly fine. That's normal. But the problem is the purpose of it in our nature. And out of that, you know, when we break up sugar into its various parts, the most famous are sucrose and fructose. Right? These are the two that we know of so well. Now, we think fructose is good for us. Why do we think fructose is good for us? Because it comes from fruits. It's natural. So because it's natural, it must be good for us. But what's interesting about fructose is that your body doesn't recognize it as a substance. And it actually treats fructose as a toxin, which is why fructose gets processed in the liver. It's not absorbed into your bloodstream immediately like sucrose. So what happens when you have fructose is that your body has to work extra hard over time to get it out of your system. So your liver has to function. And what that does is that your liver slowly, slowly starts degenerating and you start getting the same issues as alcoholics do. So you get something called fatty liver disease, right? Liver sclerosis. Why? Because of the amount of fructose that you're getting in. Now, does that mean fruits are bad? No. Fruits are good in quantity. So you understand the quantity of fruits and then it makes sense. So the correct quantity of an apple is half an apple. Correct quantity of a banana is one small banana, right? And which apples are we talking about? The old apples, you know, the ones that we used to get when we were children, the tiny ones, not these big monsters that we're getting now. And the worst form of this is the fructose that comes from juices, because ultimately what we've done is we squeezed out the fiber, which slows down the process of absorption. So, you know, while you might talk about all these different kinds of sugars and sugar alcohols, it's a rabbit hole. Honestly, you know, you need to have a degree to figure out all these different kinds of sugar. And that's why the, you know, the industries are making it so hard for you to figure this out. But if you stick to the broad principles, saying that I need to cut down on my sweet, like I have a nice phrase that I learned from this person called Dr. Gundry, which was retreat from sweet. If you can retreat from the sweet and figure it out or reduce the quantity, you're steadily starting to make better choices. So overall, don't think about sugar and the formats of it. Try just retreating from sweet as much as possible. Got it. I think uh, that's a great point you make about, uh, uh, and I'm happy we started with fructose hmm. uh, and fruits. You know, we get a lot of questions about is coconut sugar bad? Is uh, uh, jaggery bad? Is is date sugar bad, uh, right? Whenever you extract sugar out of its natural source uh, and it becomes really, it loses all its nutrients, loses the fiber, loses the minerals that it comes with. Its ability to satiate you goes down and its ability to spike your insulin goes up. So any extracted form of sugar is bad. And hence, if you apply that fundamental to Juices, juices in large quantity can be really bad. They have the same amount of sugar as your colas. But when you have them as a fruit, as it is, chances are you will not be able to overeat on a fruit unless it's grapes or something which are really easy to overeat on. It's really tough to have two apples uh, in one go because it also satiates you. Yeah. So one rule that we follow is, is it satiating you? Is it making you feel bus? I don't want to have more. Or is it making you feel, give me more, give me more? That's a differentiation to make uh, in daily life. Absolutely. Uh, let me use that. Uh, let me use that as a segue to head over to Kumud. Uh, Kumud, I'm going to read a few lines out of a TOI article from 2013. This is seven years ago. It says, and I quote, uh, the per capita consumption of sugar in India is 20.2 kgs. That's lower than the global average of 24.8, but it's growing more 
rapidly than the, than the global average. Uh, the consumption in India of sugar has gone up from 5% to 13% of the sugar produced globally. Now, my question to you as, as a budding food anthropologist is this. How did this happen to us? Uh, can you explain the history of sugar and how it entered our supply chain and just help us understand the, his, the landscape of sugar in the Indian context? Sure. Um, I'm going to try and keep this as brief as possible when it comes to the history because there's so much to know. Uh, but, you know, to, to be honest, sugar has been in India for a really long time and we actually play a really big role in, um, in sugar in world history. Um, also to say that we are definitely one of the primary origin areas of sugarcane. Uh, but before sugarcane itself, we, are, we have been known to extract you know, a syrup or molasses from palm trees, which was there before sugarcane. Um, so you can see like notes from Alexander Army on 326 BC, I think, uh, when they were in India and they speak about, you know, quote, honey from reeds. You know, um, so we ha always have had sugar for a very long time. Now, jumping to probably say the Gupta dynasty, which was again, I think around the third century BC, um, and you've had lots of introductions of new foods and, you know, innovations and inventions were on all time high. And that's when we get to see crystallized sugar as we see it today. That was the first time that we actually become accustomed and acquainted with crystallized sugar. Um, you know, because before that, Ayurveda did use some form of sugar, you know, in a syrup form where it is used as a form of medicine. But then again, in really small quantities, I think that's something that's important to remember as well. Um, so I'll jump now to probably the British rule in India and, um, you know, the kind of impact that that had on our production of sugar cakes in general. Um, you know, we, we see the British rule, they've been here for like a really long time and it also coincides with the industrialization of, um, of, of the world, you know, the industrial era. So our food systems did change with that as well. And sugar and the British just have some sort of like a history together where they have encouraged plantations in all the colonies. Um, and also they're very strategic, the Britishers, right? So when sugar got expensive to import from the West Indies, they saw an opportunity to increase production in India, you know, just because of the sheer cost of it. Um, and they would also see, for example, um, the Mahuri tribe in, in Orissa and Bihar and Bengal, which was all one state at that point, they making sugar. So again, we've always made sugar in some form or the other, and the Britishers just probably took, you know, notes from us, probably how to make sugar in a cheap fashion so you know industries were were started in that area again um just to make sugar specifically for the britishers and to import to britain i think when the britishers left india we kind of just continued uh, the way agriculture systems were set up by them so that included like sugarcane plantations and um you know from an economic standpoint of view and policy standpoint of view those became subsidized because it made sense to grow a lot of more sugarcane and then export it and also flood our, our local markets with sugar. So I think what Ashton has also said is that it's kind of snuck up on us in a lot of ways and different products that are available in the market. Uh, and that goes to do with, you know, the last decade where FMCG sectors boomed to a considerable size. Um, so I think when we see when we're traveling and we see, you know, fast food outlets, that becomes a point of sugar intake. You know, if we are living this westernized 
way of living, which is fast paced and, you know, a lot of focus on work and not necessarily our health. Uh, we want things fast. And all of these really quick, instant products do contain sugar. Um, it's a way of you know, stabilizing the product. It's a way to get them addicted to the product, uh, which is why you would see, you know, lifestyle diseases like diabetes on an all-time increase in India as well. So it's it's got to do with, you know, definitely a shift in our lifestyle. Got it. That's actually very interesting in that the history of sugar that you charted for us, uh, especially the recent history also reminds me of the global recent history of, of sugar. Uh, Ashton and I keep talking about how uh, you know, HFCS, which is high fructose corn syrup, which is the cheapest and perhaps the worst form of sugar in the global supply chains today, was was an outcome of the Great Depression uh, in the 1970s, uh, uh, when you know the Western world was going through an economic depression, and and US told its farmers to shift to a cash crop, and the best and easiest cash crop was corn. So they produced so much corn that they couldn't consume it within their domestic economy. And uh, then they invented HLCS uh, to convert corn into a sugary syrup and then export it to the world. And we know how good the American marketing machinery is. Once they started marketing their cookies and cakes and breads to us, we just couldn't stop because it was so addictive. And HLCS entered the world's uh, supply chain. Kumut, I'm hanging on to the point of, you know, how we've always had sugar, uh, sugary food in our diet, but why things are changing so fast. You've given us one part of the answer. I'm going to come back to it at a later point of time. But right now, I want to bring in uh, Sanjeevni, who's recently been through a personal experience with giving up sugar. I think she's on her 33rd day today of having no sugar at all. Uh, Sanjeevni, uh, tell us what prompted you to go on this path? What prompted uh, Not one, but two of my doctors asked me to go off sugar. Uh, and the reason was emotional stability for mental health. Given that I have been uh, trying to battle anxiety and my depression for quite a, quite some time now. But the second was my own realization that uh, the only thing I was thinking about all the time is what do I eat next? Because I was hangry all the time. Like they say, hungry and angry. And the work stress or anything, any sort of, uh, you know... Um, development in life wouldn't be enough to give me that instant gratification. So I'd sort of replaced hope with the per, in, in the pursuit of instant gratification. And that for me was sugary food. So it was a lot of ketchup, even with, you know, a regular meal. It would mean a bite of dark chocolate after lunch. It would mean a uh, lot of brownies and a lot of macaroons in the evening with my team to add a little spice to life. And then, of course, the constant tea breaks, and then uh, smoke breaks, and then chewing gums, uh, sugary chewing gums after that. And then at night, if there was no dessert at home, I would have a big lump of jaggery. And I could just feel all of this floating inside, and definitely not in a healthy way. There would be acid reflux, a lot of bloating, a lot of uh, this Mentally, I was occupied with the thoughts about what I'm eating, what I'm going to eat next, and the guilt of not eating right, and still feeling this craving to have more of it. It felt like I was in a loop that I was not able to get out of. 
uh, so finally, after a lot of attempts, like this is not my first attempt at quitting sugar, but finally I've been able to like be off it for a good 33 days. So uh, that was, uh, I think this should now properly prompt me to be out of sugar for good. Uh, but the idea is to stay mentally clear because I think what sugar does is it, it just really, I don't know how, but it fogs your mind a lot. Got it. First of all, congratulations for being at it and, and getting through the 33 days. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to ask. Ashdin, this next, and I'm sure he has many such instances, but just to answer your question of why this was uh, happening, there is enough research out there which uh, says that the effect of sugar, the dopamine hit of sugar, uh, is in many ways similar to dope. Uh, and hence, it is addictive in a real scientific way. And, uh, and the funny thing, obviously, is that the gatekeeper to what enters our body is the tongue. Uh, uh, which is a very fickle mistress, right? It 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 reacts in a second, uh, but digestion takes thirty forty minutes an hour. So what feels bad later feels really good at the entry point. And unfortunately, the gatekeeper is like, yeah, give me more, give me more. When the guy who's going to use it, which is the stomach, is like, dude, stop it. You're not being a good gatekeeper. Yeah. So you have to train your mind to override the gatekeeper and listen to the guy who's gonna who's going to be affected by it. But let me come to Ashdin. Ashdin, just like Sanjeevni, I know that you have many, many work clients and people who follow you uh, with whom you do this 30-day off no sugar uh, challenge. Uh, tell me what's the uh, biggest challenge you've seen them face and does what part of Sanjeevni's story resonates with that? You know, the funny thing is that as a habit coach, people keep asking me about habits, good habits, bad habits, right? And exactly what you were talking about, Shashank, which is that a bad habit is what gives you instant gratification. You know, something that gives you instant gratification is almost always falling into that bad habit category. If you can delay the gratification, it's more of a goodish habit. Exercise feels horrible while you're doing it, but you've delayed the gratification. Sugar feels damn good while you're having it, feels horrible later on. So, you know, you can start seeing it. And I completely agree with what Sanjeevni was saying at that point of time. And we do this no sugar challenge for 30 days, almost every month. And I've been doing this now, I think, for the last four years, five years. I just saw old posts from Facebook where I was talking about it. And that time, the first time we did it, we were doing a 100-day challenge. And we had about 250 people doing that with us. And it was a crazy experience, right? Because... About 20% dropped off over the 100 days, but that didn't, those that didn't saw a dramatic change. What I want to talk about is why most people don't even start this process. Okay, So the toughest things to give up for most people are their morning habits, your chai or that coffee, your tea or coffee in the morning. You know, probably why the British Empire like, got so addicted to sugar was because of their tea maybe. You know, uh, the, the interesting uh, piece that I picked up from what you were saying is this morning ritual thing. Uh, I think there is also an angle of morning there that the brain takes a while to come to its senses. And, uh, you know, like for me now, coffee, black coffee is my morning ritual. And before I know it, I've already, I've already put water in the kettle and it's already heating and I'm already putting coffee, coffee grinds into the French press. Uh, without, without even properly waking up. 
and when this habit used to have sugar embedded in it uh, you know even before my mind woke up i already had sugar in my stomach and then there was no getting away from it let me use that to come back to uh, kumud last question kumud we we left off at a very intriguing uh, point you know with the fact that indians are notorious for how sweet their sweets are uh, we've always had our kulfis and cheese and gulab jamuns and what nots and they are the most sugar drippy sweets that you'll find in the world like we take stuff we fry it we put it in a sugar liquid and then serve it with sugar right so uh, yet if you look at the stats uh, indians are far less overweight and obese than say the americans uh, uh, there's data that says that about 40% of american adults are overweight uh, about one in every four american adults uh, has or will have diabetes in their life uh so that's above 25 30% as an average right that number in india till 10 years ago used to be 12% it's now risen to 20% so mm-hmm. my question is if we've always had so much sweet sweet in our diet why is it that all the markers of health related to sugar are worsening now in the last decade or so Yeah I think that's a really good question just to bring in some perspective I feel like you have to see after you know the british has left us how industries have increased right so for example I want to answer this in like maybe a two fold answer sort of a thing so one is that the dairy industries increase and boomed as well so we consume a lot of dairy we produce a lot of dairy and we consume also a lot of dairy and most of your uh you know by products as to speak of dairy is desserts and where desserts are sugar is going to be used as well um and that also speaks to not just um you know a specific sect of society it speaks to the society in general the mass population right so unless we don't have uh better choices of sugar what they're going to see in the market which is your refined sugars what they're going to use right so your kirana stores any like corner store has packet of sugars your refined crystallized white sugar um and that's not necessarily a good thing obviously as we are trying to speak but i think on the cultural aspect also that i want to kind of touch upon is that sugar is seen as a happy emotion right ashnos spoke about this it is a representative of good and happy times so uh, again being in india just a sheer amount of festivals that we have there is like a natural upgrade of how much sweets we consume uh, you know not just throughout the year but also specifically to these festivals you know it is um, celebratory it is auspicious to a certain limit so you know besides festivals also like how else i have seen sugar play a role in you know indian food cultures that you know i know a lot of mothers who want to give their child like dahi and sugar come mixture before they going for an exam you know and now when you really think about it, i think what's happening on a chemistry uh, point of view is that their brain is being activated and addicted and awake you know which is why they probably can give the exam uh, a lot more when they are alert so you see like this nuances a little bit here and there you know for example like if we have family visiting from abroad the one thing that they would surely get is something sweet it's just it's just seen as a happy emotion that's just the way sugar is and has been in our food culture and not just india but you know all over of course um you know the second part of this answer is that our our food systems have changed yes as i said you know there is this wave of like westernization that's come into our lifestyles and that also means like high in fat high in salt and definitely high in sugar 
and these sell like hotcakes. You know, it is it's good marketing, and you know we see the younger generation when they step out. It's you know when they want to hang hang out with their friends. It's over a cup of coffee, or let's get a brownie, or let's get waffles. You know, so you have an attack of sugar from like a traditional point of view, but also from a Westernized point of view. You can't seem to escape it. You know, and probably thanks to people like Ashton who, you know, reset the wiring in our brains. Um, if nobody does that for us, it's just there ample in the market. And that's what the kind of choices that we make as well. Yeah, you know, uh, interestingly, I think there is also a evolutionary angle to why uh, sweets came to be connected so deeply with happy emotions. I, it, it, in the hunter-gatherer times, the, the thing you used to survive on was grass or some form of uh, leafy stuff. And then once in a while you'd get a kill and then you will get protein and fat. The toughest thing to come across was sugar for which you'd have to forage for nuts and berry, uh, for, you know, berries and dates and, and fruits, etc. Especially in the concentrated form, it was really tough to get, get sugar. And hence, sugar became a thing of value. Because humans needed energy to either chase their food or run away to not become someone else's food. And that burst of energy used to come from sugar, which was not very easily available. And hence, sugar became, uh, you know, this prized thing that you kept for the guests. And this thing that gave you so much happiness because of the dopamine effect. It was almost like a magical, magical thing. And until date, we are... Uh, you know, we are a prey to that evolutionary biology also and add to that what you're saying that, you know, we've always had this constant stream of sugary sweets in India, but we used to always have them as, you know, once a day as dessert. But with the ubiquity of sugar seeping into everything we eat during the day, the sweets haven't gone away, but all of this has gotten loaded on top of that and that's pushed us uh, over the edge, perhaps. Let me use that to come to uh, Sanjeevni. Sanjeevni, what was the toughest uh, part of uh, the leaving sugar journey? Were there some foods that you found really, really tough? Was there some pattern that you noticed? What made this so tough that you know you tried multiple times and only this time you got into the 33rd day? So, um, yes, there were foods that I found tough to give up. And yes, there was a pattern too. So, coming to the food, Absolutely starting my day without anything that is a non-sugar was really tough. It would just, uh, I wouldn't feel like I had woken up completely from my sleep, even on my way to work or anywhere else when I would start my day. Uh, and post-lunch afternoons have been really, really tough to cope up with. Because it had sort of become a routine that I either put in a bar of chocolate in my mouth after lunch as a, you know, um, something nice. And uh, or the mid-afternoon snack that used to be the desserts we used to order when I would be working with the team or somewhere else or meeting someone. Every meal had to end with a dessert no matter whether it was a uh, meat or drinks or anything else, it had to had to end with dessert. So that ritual was sort of that pattern was tough to give up. And foods, of course, like 
morning teas were sorely missed because it just added that like why would you just eat upma like that why would you just eat a poha just like that or either without a chai or ketchup like who eats your breakfast without a dash of sugar it, it has become that sort of a thing and then when i started uh this no sugar bit for like 30 days and starting my day with just you know this very simple plain carbs breakfast and no uh chai no ketchup uh or say not not even bread jam i honestly felt like i was a patient who's on a khichdi diet got it ashdin you want to come in there you know it, w- what is interesting is that the way you said that i have it was such a horrible routine i felt like i was on a patient ka diet and you know this is the truth because what we do is we get it backwards we remove first instead we have to add on stuff so the way to actually give up sugar is to first add on all the stuff that you're going to do once the sugar leaves so you still have that excitement in your life so like you said my breakfast became boring my this became boring my that became boring instead of removing the sugar and then figuring it out first figure it out find substitutes and then remove the sugar it makes that entire transition much much easier that's a, that's a superb point even i like i never thought of it that way it was always a mission that i was on that you know this is the test of my mental strength it, i never tried to convert it into a pleasurable experience i was like this is pain and i'm going to get through it uh yeah uh, but let me ask you as in decode this one thing for me which really drives me nuts we all of us in the health wellness industry to one way or the other whatever the industry is are seeing that consumers are getting more and more aware about sugar and its bad effects and yet obesity diabetes all the numbers that i was quoting to kumud are on all time highs explain this dichotomy to me why is this happening so one is that people want to perceive food that is healthy even though it's not healthy so for example there's this uh, fantastic documentary that i was watching the other day super size me part 2 where he goes around making a chicken restaurant so it was fascinating and all of them spoke about something called the health halo which was how do you make a product look good even though it's not good health wise for you so many of us are moving to what we think is healthier food even though it is not necessarily healthy for us what happens is that you have this health halo around it so something that looks good and what we think is healthy for us we end up eating more of correct so the quantities then go out the window correct now we each in the order individual desserts so the way that our quantities have changed is a dramatic way in which also our well our health has changed obesity has changed all those parameters so the same way health food has come in but the quantity has increased and as a result we are seeing similar things that that point was very interesting that you should first add stuff to your diet before you think of removing sugar from it so that there is something that you're excited about in your diet can you give us some examples of how to do that So, for example, the breakfasts, right? Um, as soon as you remove all your cornflakes and all your cereals from it, because typically your cereals are sweet and sugary, what do you do? So, add your proteins in. If you can eat eggs, eat more eggs. You know, get that in as a habit. 
correct? At the end of your lunch, what do you do? Don't have a dessert. Instead, um, have something that you can make out of cacao. Like, for example, I love chocolate. So I make my desserts out of cacao. I also have, for example, protein shakes. So in my protein shake, I know that it's made out of stevia. So I make puddings out of that protein shake. So I know that I'm getting something sweet, but it is not necessarily sugar. So that's how I start playing around with it. I actually plan it out saying, if I'm going off sugar, this is what I'm going to be doing. And hence getting substitutes in. So it's very interesting. So for example, for me, I don't think I have something sweet at all through the day, except for maybe a protein shake or something else. So I've tried reducing it down to maybe two such instances in the day when I would be exposing myself to the flavor sweet. And now, how do you get rid of that need for something sweet? You move to something bitter. You would have noticed that we've actually moved away from bitter foods and thought of bitter foods as something that's bad for us. Correct? If we can start moving towards bitter foods more, the chances of you being able to give up the sweeter foods increases dramatically. And bitter foods are typically higher in all your polyphenols, the stuff that, you know, which we call antioxidants and those aspects of food. So as a result, it is better to get into that category. Explore your taste buds. There are so many different flavors. Let us explore those and understand what kind of foods, you know, we can actually enjoy without feeling that we're depriving ourselves. You know, that's a very interesting point because uh, a doctor friend of mine was telling me how uh, the ability to appreciate bitter tastes uh, human beings develop later in life and hence, you know, stuff like karela, which you would hate as a child, you start eating. Dark chocolate, which you don't like as a child, you start eating. Beer, you start appreciating later on in life and alcohol later on in life, which you don't like earlier on. Uh, just just expand that on a bit. In your personal experience, is there a uh, easy way or an easier way of making this what sounds like an extreme jump to go from sweet to bitter? It sounds sexy, but it also sounds like a huge jump, like go from one end of the, of the spectrum to another. Is there an easy way to do this? So firstly, Karela still sucks. Okay. <laughs> so no, getting away from that. It's called bitter goat for a reason. Okay, so Karela still sucks. But the thing is that can you start at least choosing other flavors? You know, um, instead of putting sugar in all your vegetables to make it more palatable, right? Can you start moving towards the other forms of vegetables? So like your leafy greens technically are flavorful but bitter. And you will notice there are a lot of bitter salad leaves that you can add in. So that's how we started putting things in to your food. You know, like rocket, rocket, oh God, like how do you, like a proper, nice, spicy rocket. Like there's so many different flavors to that uh, profile itself. But, you know, earlier on we would have disguised it by a dressing that had sugar in it. Like why do salad dressings need to have honey in it? Correct? A salad dressing is supposed to be technically something acidic, something fatty. Uh, I'll say that, you know, the last part of this is make conscious choices. Right? Look at your diet every day and say which aspects of this are sweet and why. Is it necessary? What can I do differently? Some of our cultures are so entrenched in sweet that there is sugar in almost all our dishes. How do we move away from that? How do we convince our family who's eating along with us? You know, so those are the tougher things for us to have a discussion about as well. Sorry, Kumo, do you want to come in? 
Yeah. Um, firstly, better is better, you know, as mm-hmm. doctors will tell you. So I do understand that. But another point I wanted to bring across is that each of us have this uh, genetic predisposition, right? That's how we term it. Like, what are we more attracted to uh, in terms of taste? So I know for a fact that I do like bitter food and I think Kaila is the best thing ever for me. Maybe not in a juice form, but like as a vegetable for sure. Um, so I'm, I don't eat a lot of sweet and I think that has to do with my interest in food and just wanting to taste as many flavors as possible and not be satiated with sugar. So I think, again, um, marketeers and companies know for a fact the effect that sugar has on our brain. So it's just covers, you know, sugar, covers sugar with everything. And that's like a sure way of getting people to buy a product and thus, you know, increasing sales. Um, so I think if people kind of start understanding that, okay, this is my diet, uh, maybe I should reduce my sugar because there will be ways where sugars will be snuck up on me in different ways. I think that's up to everybody, right? I don't think there's a one size that fits all. Um, but as I said before, I think it's a life skill just to start reading labels and then just studying your diet uh, per se. Everyone is different. Um, I think that's something that is important to also understand. And being in India, it's so simple, you know, like the kind of biodiversity that we have in vegetables and lentils and whatnot. um, To make it a rich diet is not that difficult. No matter how rich or poor you are, I don't think that has to do with anything, um, with how much disposable incomes that you have. Couldn't agree more. You know, having gone through uh, three weight gain and loss cycles, I've basically come to understand that there is a larger philosophical point at play here that we keep looking for the answer to sugar outside, which is which is the Western view of the world, that there'll be some product which is coming along next which will solve my sugar problem. Today it is stevia, tomorrow it is mouth food, then there'll be some surgery, there'll be some liposuction. Something outside of me will solve this for me. Whereas our uh, you know philosophical point of view in life has always been look inside change something within you and then none of these will matter at all. Yeah, which is why we keep, there was a constant thread throughout the conversation about how this came from the Western world, this came due to marketing, this came due to capitalism. Uh, I think the, the, the silver bullet that I've found is look inside, blame yourself that it's me and then change yourself. So Ashlyn, one of the questions we've gotten from our listeners is, uh, uh, I stress eat a lot and stress isn't going away anytime soon. Uh, so how in the presence of stress do I, uh, do I give up on sugary food and delink the two things? So it's very interesting. So one is, of course, stress eating is a very, very real thing, right? Different people have different relationships with food. So because of stress, some people eat too much. Some people don't eat at all. So stress eating has two aspects of it. Now, the way to understand it is how do you de-link food from the stress and why should you do it? Correct. So what happens is that for many of us, food becomes like company. It becomes like a best friend. It becomes like a, you know, that warm, comforting blanket. And once we start realizing this and start realizing where our triggers are for these kind of things, the stress eating can start slowing down slowly, slowly. Notice that you're never stress eating for nutrition. So it's not that you can replace that brownie with something that's healthier. 
No, you want that brownie because of the way it makes you feel. So, unfortunately, stress eating is one of the hardest things to get rid of. I fall prey to it all the time. There are times when I've gone through something in my life that I'm just, I couldn't figure out how else to do. I stress eat. I know that, you know, it is a reality. There is no uh, magic trick to get away from it. But to become conscious about it, saying that, okay, right now I'm stress eating. Okay, I understand. Right now I'm stress eating. Okay, I understand. And then slowly, because of the conscious effort, you'll start stress eating lesser. The last aspect of this is don't have enough, don't have too many things at home that you will stress eat. You know, if there is, a, if it's a little harder to do, as in you have to go down to the shop to buy, the chances of you doing it will, will you know, decrease. Uh, the biggest problem right now is that we have all these apps that deliver food home, which is making it really hard because it's just so simple to just punch in something and have like a gooey brownie delivered to your doorstep. I worked with clients where we deleted those apps, made sure that they don't uh, get back on it. So that is how you start dealing with it. Stress eating is very, very real. Start learning to manage stress first and then figure out how to deal with the stress eating part. To that point, I want to end the conversation by going back to Sanjeevni, who's gone through this personal experience and asked her, Sanjeevni, what has this 33-day period taught you about both your body and your brain and their relationship with sugar? So if I were to um, put it like that, I think uh, sugar is like a bad boyfriend. It's an abusive relationship completely. So the sooner you know that you need to get out of it, the better it is. And you should typically totally understand the triggers that make you go back to sugar, just like in a bad relationship, you know. It's got a lot to do with just the spirituality or the greater good of what your body uh, should be and needs rather than what you are feeding it right now. So moderation is the game changer, at least in my case. Brilliant. So I think Chuck, all the philosophy, sugar is a bad boyfriend. I, let's wrap it up at that. Thank you so much, Ashden, Kumod, and Sanjeevni for making time to do this. I think this was a very in-depth conversation like we expected it to be. That's it. With that, we wrap up the first episode of The Whole Truth Project. Thank you, folks. And remember that we release a new podcast every Sunday, unearthing the 360-degree unbiased truth about the fundamental topic related to food and fitness. So do not forget to subscribe and share. And do follow us on Instagram and Twitter, where we continue the sugar conversation. Links are in the episode description. Ciao for now.